Blog.
So there's a, there's a great diversity of people on there. Lenny Poffo, uh, Axel Rotten, just uh, even the Iron Sheik periodically humbles someone. <laughs> yes, it's it's a highlight of my week um, to to listen to your insight because I feel when I when I hit the download button, I feel like it's I'm stepping into a classroom, and that that's cool. That's that's what. That's what what we respect here on on my show. I tend to bring in um, people that have been in the business and that have done things successfully so that we can teach the younger generation because obviously from the WWE standpoint, it's not happening. So the you know the kids and the, and the younger people need to learn from somewhere else. And I, I think it's it's very important that you know stories are told, um, inputs given. Um, not to mention, I love modest modest lounge. Um, Mike is yeah. a very dear friend of mine, and and it, it's that's him. That that's not so, work. And and it's that's and he's him. another experienced guy with insight. Um, you know, he he may have been he may not have gone the the furthest in the business of any one wrestler, but he's he's been around the business for a long time and knows a lot. In fact, uh, uh, he recorded a piece recently about the time he spent at the NWA TV tapings that was quite good. Um, when he was out there on the West Coast, uh, observing and helping out a little bit backstage. So uh, I've appreciated his insight also, and he's somebody I've known for quite a few years. Now, but I'd um, enjoy the opportunity also. By the way, for those listening, it's whosslammingwho.podomatic.com to listen to those things. But it it is really an extension of what I've been trying to do over the last 15 years or so. Uh, I got in the business working initially with Jerry Jarrett and then after that with Jim Cornette, uh, and I – basically got thrown into booking at one point very early, helping make sense of some stuff at the time that was being booked by Mike Samples. Other people didn't like it but didn't know how to fix it. So all of a sudden, back in 1995 or so, or 96, uh, they just started sending the scripts to me and going, uh, hey, fix these. And, of course, my so I had no experience at all, didn't have a clue what I was doing, and that was my start. Then, thank God, I got to work with Dutch Mantell, who does know what he's doing, and Dutch taught me a ton. Jerry taught me a ton. Cornette is one of the great bookers, and he taught me a ton. So I've been blessed to be around people that know what they're doing. And uh, we've tried within the companies I've been involved, starting with Music City, which then became NWA Worldwide, then NWA Georgia, NWA Wildside, and now NWA Anarchy in Georgia. We're really a, uh, functioning as a development area. We did it for a while for WCW, but we've done it independently and we've been involved at least marginally in the careers of people like A.J. Styles, who I also manage in terms of his career, um, people like Hernandez, Abyss, Ronnie Killings, uh, guys like Shannon Moore, even in a fleeting sense, the Hardys, and more recently people like Consequences Creed and Jimmy Rave, who have gotten opportunity. We've sort of been involved in helping train those people, and in the process they've been able to, to learn a little bit about how shows are run, booking. We operate our system just a whole lot differently than a lot of other people. We're not driven by stars that have been to the show. We have a tendency to develop stars that we hope go to the show. Now, um, I have a, a couple friends that, that, that worked for you in Wildside, uh, Sal and Vito Tomaselli. Um, they were out here in the West Coast, and then they moved, moved to the Georgia area. And they said that they... they they learned the the in ring stuff, the the uh 
Japanese type of in-ring stuff here in the Northern California. Then they moved out out east uh, with you, and then they learned. They told me they have, they learned how to work TV, how to work a TV match, how to work the camera, and I, it's fascinating how these gentlemen can can go to different places and pick up different things. And it, it was just it was fascinating that they they told me this because kids aren't learning properly. No, very much not. And and part of the problem is that very few promotions are driven around television because in general television is the double-edged sword of the wrestling business. It seems to be a holy grail or perceived as such for many promoters. Most recently, Ring of Honor uh, bit into that apple, for example. But the end result is usually the expenses of it uh, put the companies out of business or they change a business plan, depending on the company we're talking about, such that in areas that were making money, now don't make as much money because you're giving away what you used to sell. Uh, we've been always different in that we're operating out of a very small building, about two, 250 people can fit in it. The economics are very controlled, and we're going to relatively draw what we draw anyway. I remember one time we had Steve Carino book when he was world champion, and Joey Matthews and Christian York were supposed to come in. Uh, Carino no-showed for whatever reason. This was back in a time when, uh, for whatever reason, Dusty was mad at me, so I think that's why it happened. And um, and uh, the other kids called up and said, hey, we can get a, a booking for a buck fifty each up here. Do you mind if we just stay home and do that? And I said, of course. And nobody cared. I mean, we drew the same crowd. We were missing supposedly our, our big stars for that particular show, but it didn't matter. Um, and learning to work television is dramatically different than working house shows or standard shows, particularly on the indies where you're slapping hands when you go around ring, where uh, the predominant heel work is to yell at the crowd to try to get heat rather than working your opponent to get heat. So the, the end result is a lot of the kids are learning techniques that were they to get opportunity in TNA, were they to get the opportunity in WWE, or even opportunity in Ring of Honor on their television on high def or on NWA on their television on colors, they're really unprepared for it because they haven't learned that the primary audience is the one that's not in the arena. And it's the one that's reflected by the hard camera primarily and secondarily the handheld cameras around the ring. So the Tomasellis are a good example. Sal, Vito, also Brandon came in. And all of them had to get a little bit of a re-education because the tendency is when you put yourself over to put yourself over to the crowd, the bleachers. Well, if you do that in our building, you're putting your ass on camera. And at that point, you're really not putting your best foot forward because hopefully there's more people watching at home than the 200 people that happen to be in that building. You don't want to leave those people out. You want to include them. But you have to learn where your primary audience is and learn how to project your personality through that camera to that audience as well as the audience that's live. And a lot of people get stuck in the rut of only delivering for the live audience and ending up shortchanging the audience at home. Mm -hmm. There it is. That explains their point exactly. Um, <clears throat> now, I, I have a question for you, Bill. Do you prefer the term booker or writer? Uh, there's, they're actually two totally different things. Um, and, and there's two do totally different psychologies to them from my perspective. Uh, and I think my friend Jim Cornette would agree with this vehemently. 
Uh, writing is something relatively new, and it, it's it's an unfortunate growth of the business at some level. Um, out of perceived necessity, uh, the larger a promotion gets, the more likely they are to want to tightly format and script their programming and dictate very specifically what the talent does within the blocks they're provided, particularly when it comes to talking. Uh, and that's led to people who, like Vince Russo, who is a talented man but really doesn't care about the wrestling product because all he cares about are the words. I've tried to say to Vince, well, but if you don't care about what happens on stage, then the words don't matter, and in that we have an ongoing conflict. Booking is, is a process that is involved in the writing but is really separate of it. A, and also there's a difference between booking and just matchmaking. Uh, a lot of people at promotions matchmake, and all that is is take this, you know, take wrestler A and put him in the ring with wrestler B, B deliver them a finish, and get done for the night. Um, any monkey can matchmake. Any monkey can put a number of people together. Booking is the art, and wrestling itself is an art form. It's an entertainment art form. It's the art of not just creating matchups but creating a progressive, simplistic story that an audience can get involved in and, if you're lucky, willingly suspend disbelief and believe in. In its purest sense, it's creating a good guy and a bad guy. You know, people argue now that the lines have been blurred, but the reality is the lines have always been blurred. Uh, cool heels have always existed, and cool heels have always been respected. But in a pure sense, the good guy is the one the crowd predominantly will cheer for, and the bad guy is the one the crowd will predominantly boo. You can set up just a simplistic match, or you can set up a story. And that story does not have to be written out in script form to be compelling booking. Rather, you simply have to know how many shows you have where you're going to have this talent involved, what you want to deliver at the tail end, what's the final emotional and visceral response you want from the crowd, and how do you get there. Great bookers not only know their destination, but they know the road they're taking, and at the same time are not afraid every once in a while to drive off the road and go visit uh, a theme park or an, another attraction. They're willing to listen to the crowd and to adjust what they're doing and not predisposed to the exact route they planned from the beginning. There are some bookers, however, that know how to get started and have no idea how to get finished. There's other bookers that have great destinations. Um, Dusty was famous for that. Had wonderful destinations, war games, and all of these wonderful things. And then sometimes the road meandered getting to them because that part of it wasn't as well thought out as the destination, but the destination was a hell of a place to go. But that's good booking. The process of writing is something that came into play you know, basically, it's, it's actually within the last decade pr predominantly because even back in the early days of WWE, there was less writing and more booking. Uh, there was the tendency of just creating the matchups, making them simplistic. Back in the Hulk Hogan days, it wasn't tightly scripted. It was off the cuff an awful lot more. The Roddy Piper segments back in the day were done off the top of his head. They weren't written out. That would never happen today. Now everything is written out. And to some extent, it's robbed the creativity of individual promoters and it's put it in the hands of, of writers who then have to hope that they can find the voice of that promoter, of that performer. And that's 
two separate, that's separate challenges in many cases. Sometimes you get lucky. You get a performer like a Mick Foley that can take somebody else's written word and make it his own. And sometimes what you get is a guy just memorizing a bunch of words and doing his best to relate them but not feeling them. And whether it's a match or a promo, if the talent doesn't believe in what they're talking about, regardless of the quality of the writing, it's not going to get over. Very similarly, if you're in a movie, you can have the world's most wonderful script, but if the actors don't act it well, the script sucks in the long run, and so will the movie. Similarly, you can have the greatest actors in the world, and if the script sucks, then so will the movie. So we have the same challenge now that we've got a group of people that in many cases have never been involved in the wrestling business in any substantive way, particularly at WWE because they lean in that direction, who are creating or trying to create the in-ring drama that we hope will allow us to suspend disbelief. And there's people there with great experience that are hopefully leading to them to how to take what they're writing and make it work on the stage of wrestling. But the better way is to have people who have worked on the stage of wrestling or understand the stage of wrestling presenting it to the people who understand the stage, which are the performers, giving them the basic outline of what they need to accomplish and giving them the freedom to feel some of the emotion of that and make it real for the audience. And some of that passion has been lost in the concept of writing. And so you're faced sometimes simply with the best a group of people can do and hand to a group of performers. It's a different process. It's amateur, th- it's, it's amateur theater at its worst sense rather than at its best sense because at some level it betrays the basics of the wrestling business and the logic that used to come with good booking. Well, the, <clears throat> the thing is, you, you watch WWE programming, and there are all these different talents that, that are you know, cutting promos on the mic and, and all this and doing little skits, but it's, it's the same words from the same person, but just a different voice. And people aren't, the, the characters nowadays are not distinct. They're all pretty much the same, and, that, and by saying that, the fans are not, are not you know, grabbing a hold of someone, and there isn't, isn't an emotional um, connection. I don't right, and, and the best of those characters are the ones that have defined their own character more than a writer. And, and you'll find that the promos that are delivered the best are the ones that are delivered by characters that already know who they are, rather than the writer trying to help them find who they are. That process doesn't work as well. You know, wrestlers are trained predominantly to be performers and not necessarily to be actors in the pure theatrical sense of acting, you know, where I'm given a script, I memorize my words, and I go out. The great joy of wrestling is improvisation. That is what wrestling is, regardless of the amount now that young people go through their match in the back move for move in sort of a pantomime dance. The reality still is that the best aspects of our business are those things that happen extemporaneously in the ring based on what should logically happen given the reaction of the crowd and given what you did before that move, feeling the situation and knowing where you're going. If you're a heat, if you're a heel, knowing when it's know it, knowing when it's time to let the baby face do a comeback, rather than simply trying to plan that comeback. Frequently, you have to feel that. And also, if you're on, you know, if you're if you know that it's time to go home, knowing that if you had three more minutes of things left to do, but by God, it's time to go home. 
knowing that you can get rid of two and a half of those three minutes worth of bullshit you had called in the back and still entertain the crowd because you're giving them what they want, which is the finish, which is the end of the ride of the roller coaster hitting the water. Sometimes you don't have to take them one more time around, and that's something that young people have trouble learning, and it translates to how people end up when they go into the bigger leagues. The art of in-ring storytelling has faded over time. There's still some tremendous artists out there, and there are some younger people that have learned the art, and A.J. Styles is a wonderful example. You know, here's a kid in his early 30s who does get how to tell a story. Um, but there's an awful lot of kids that only know how to do spots and believe they're telling a story. Yes, um, I, I agree with you on that, Bill. Um, it's it's very frustrating. Um, I mean, I, I first started watching uh, the business in 79 up here in Northern California um, with uh, the Roy Shires promotion, which was a quote-unquote high spot promotion. And there was always action, constant, and and the storytelling, no, he never insulted anybody's intelligence. Um, <clears throat> now, as far as uh, AJ, uh, the, the, the type of worker that AJ is, um, there's, there's a handful of guys out there that um, here in California, as well as in uh, the Carolinas and, and in the Chicagoland area, that can just get a finish and go out and, and, and work their match as far as what the crowd dictates. And I love that. That is, that's what the business is for me. It's, they're out there telling a story, and it's on the fly, and it doesn't feel like it's, it's a, a, a pre-planned ballet. And that, that's what, I, I can't stomach watching the TVs now, just because it's, it's like a song and dance. It's a, a vaudeville well, we're also, show. And also, at some level, there's been some mistakes made. Uh, TNA, for example makes the mistake of, mistake of being inconsistent with the, uh, the rules that they maintain and mm -hmm. betraying their referees in the process. And if you don't maintain consistency in your rules and make sure that the audience understands what the rules are, then most of your finishes don't work. So, and if your finishes don't work, you can tell the most wonderful story you've ever wanted to, but if the finish sucks, nobody will remember how good the match was. So there's, there's some catch-22s that are, that are present in there. One of the things we try to teach the, the talent, and it's, it's a polar opposite of their inclination, is to always do less and to not think they're shortchanging. If they have multiple high spots that they can do well, learn that they don't have to do them all, all the time. Mm -hmm. Again, using AJ as an example, AJ is known for five or six spots. He's known for the flip-over slop drop. He's known for the flying forearm. He's known for the styles clash. He's known for the spiral tap. He's known for a shooting styles press. And he's known for um, a couple of other, you know, minor things. And, oh, the, the Pele kick would be another. What he learned is, at the early part of his career, it, he almost felt like he had to be a highlight reel of himself every time he worked and give everybody everything. And the reality is, is what he's learned over time is that that isn't what the crowd wants. They want to see some of the things that they believe make AJ Styles phenomenal, but they don't need to see them all. They almost want something saved for the next time. So you don't see in an AJ Styles match anymore all of those things. You'll see a few of them. 
and in the law and in the and in no way does that make the match or him less phenomenal rather it's an understanding on his part that there's certain things that will get a reaction from the crowd where he can do his display shot and give them everything they wanted and still hold a little bit back to give them more the next time and that's maturity and that's what the guys back that you know in the earlier days of our business understood some better than others you know some had everyone had their own strength jake the snake roberts did a always did a tremendous pause just before he hit his ddt and now the ddt is used as a transition by wrestlers and the only argument can be nobody hits it as hard as jake used to obviously because now people use it for a double down or use it for a cutoff spot or use it for a transition going into a comeback or to get a tag you know, it's not even a finish anymore for many people. It's just something you do to do something else rather than it's being something that's protected and, and created. We just, in, in our promotion, I just had to teach the psychology of a claw to a guy that had been using the claw as a finish move for a couple of years but didn't understand the psychology of the move he was using. That, that sounds ridiculous, but it isn't. It you know got, it, a lot of guys just like you and me watched TV and remember the moves, but nobody really was ever there to explain the psychology. As a viewer, they probably knew it, but then when it came to utilizing it, the brain sort of shut off, and it's just you know okay, I put the claw on, and eventually the guy submits. You know yet, yet but there were other things that I had to explain. You know like. When you get the claw on, the claw would take the guy down. Don't let the guy sell back up while you have the claw on him because then the claw's not doing anything. The claw should make him pass out. This is a heel, so when it comes time to break the claw, make the referee yank your arm off, almost like you're locked on his head. These all sound like little hokey things, but it's in the details, mm-hmm. not in the high spots, that we tell our stories. Because the more that the moves we do, no matter how hokey they may seem, no matter how real we make, if we make it real, it is. And the crowd will believe. And we did that recently in a spot where we had somebody in a claw, they passed out, and then we had another heel come in and injure the guy's ankle while he was passed out. Claw was removed. He came, he came to crowd and everyone else there, including wrestlers that had come in the ring to help him, knew that ankle had also been hurt while he was knocked out. But logically, the guy that was knocked out doesn't know that. He knew his ankle hurt before because it, it did going into the match. We had, we had taken heat on it before. But then all of a sudden, I told him, I want you at some point to try to get to your feet and your ankle is going to collapse because you just found out your ankle's fucked. So at that point, he does it. He gets up, crowd is behind him. This is Shadow Jackson, the champion. They want him to get to his feet. Shadow, Shadow. And as he gets it, the, you know, people are trying to help him because they know he's probably hurt. He doesn't want help because he's a tough guy, and he falls down. Crowd went dead silent, which meant they believed. Brilliant. And he Brilliant. then pulled himself up, finally got to his feet, would not allow the help, and the babyface comeback on this beatdown was him limping to the back to the cheers of the crowd. That storytelling, not scripting, and that was booked, not written. And that's the difference. Now, please tell me this was taped for TV. 
Yes. Yeah, that was just on a recent uh, uh, setup. Uh, that was on a recent setup going into our Hardcore Hell show that we just did a weekend ago. That led to Jeremy Bain taking on Shadow Jackson. Shadow went over this time, but again, the ankle's been compromised. Jeremy Bain has a bodyguard, Mr. Adonis, who's the, the master now of the claw. We even did an old school segment where Jeremy Bain used some Gordon Soleyisms at my request, and, and I, I sort of I, I keyed him on some of it, but we didn't script it. I just gave him the promo and then let him mold it into his own. And I said, you know, what you want to point out is Shadow Jackson going into this big event. You know we've taken that ankle out. One of your four points of balance is now compromised. And you felt the iron claw, Mr. Adonis, the man with the greatest tendon strength in professional wrestling. And we're going to demonstrate to you what he's going to do next to you next time he gets his hands on you. And we bring out a cantaloupe. And as a shoot he rips the cantaloupe apart, and this wasn't gimmicked, and it wasn't easy. He had to struggle. But eventually, his fingers go into it, juice starts flying, and the visual is real. And it's a hokey old-school segment, but in that moment, we've gotten across what the damage was to the champion and how that champion has been compromised going into the big match and the potential danger of that hold. And that, by the way, led to the spot that I described previously, where the hold was utilized to great effect. Well, people believed it by the time they saw it. We had showed that up on the big screen earlier in the taping, the previous week of television. Then that next week of television, they get to see the match. All of a sudden, there's the hold. Now that hold is believable. And we believe that he can be hurt by that. And that's something that, again, that's booking and that's laying something out. It's making sure your finishes are believable, making sure that when you take heat, it's believable, making sure comebacks are believable. If you've been hurt, you can't go from zero to hero in a comeback. You can't all of a sudden be fresh as a daisy. And I watch kids on the indies frequently, and all of a sudden they've been having the crap kicked out of them for 15 minutes by somebody. Next thing you know, they're jumping in the air and hitting an enziguri. And you go, what the hell? Where'd that come from? I mean, I understand Gordon Soli used to talk about your second wind, but that's not second wind. That's like somebody shot, you know, all of a sudden, you, you know, you got shot through of adrenaline from an outside source. But then what always happens? Then the guy dies. And you go, what the crap? You know, he had all that energy and then gone? How the hell did that happen? And, and that's really where writing, booking, where we've betrayed our industry is if if I'm looking at it as a guy that's helping create the product and direct people in their storytelling, and if I don't believe it, and they obviously don't believe it because they just did something unrealistic, then how the hell is anybody else going to believe it? And if you don't, and, and even though this is sports entertainment, much like a good movie, we want the crowd to get emotionally involved. And a good movie is one where if it's funny, you laugh. If it's sad, you cry. And if a bad guy is taking heat on the good guy during the movie, you're pissed off and you want to come back from that good guy before the end of the movie and you want to pop for it at the end. And we're that same business. But if we don't create believability, then we're just a B movie rather than a movie that's going to sell tickets. And so when we talk about the trouble the industry's having retaining and growing audience, it's that we've betrayed what the audience likes, and that's believability even if it's artificial. We've got to convince them that what we're doing is real 
for that moment and while they're sitting there. They can go home later and believe it was fake. But while they're in the damn building or while they're watching on TV or while they're watching on a pay-per-view, our goal is to make them believe. And if in the process we also can entertain them, great. But if our primary job is the creativity of our, you know, the, the, the flashy writing, pretty bright lights, pretty colors, and ha-ha, we're, not, we're betraying our business in the process. We're doing something else, but it's not what professional wrestling is. And professional wrestling is an art form. Yes. Now, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest. I'm going to shoot with you, not because you're, you're on the show, but I, 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 I'll tell you, the NWA Anarchy TV on, on the Anarchy TV website is some of the best independent TV that I have ever seen. I look forward to watching that stuff, and it, it's amazing. It's episodic, and you can you can go back in the archives as far back as you want and just start and watch, and, and stories are told, guys are coming in and out, boom, 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 and you don't insult anybody's intelligence. You don't make me feel stupid for being a wrestling fan. Well, and, and, I you, should, you, and you shouldn't because wrestling fans are not stupid. They just want to believe. And and the key also, and it's something that even the writing teams at the larger promotions now misunderstand, it is not that difficult to give somebody from the top to the bottom of the card a storyline and something to do. And if you do, you help them bring out the personality that they're trying to bring into the ring. And that's what we try to do. We, on any one taping that we do, and we do two shows every time we tape, we don't duplicate ourselves. We don't feel the necessity of putting everybody on every show, but we start each show reminding you where we were the week before so that if you missed it, you can catch up. We reference what we did before and where we're going, and then we give you new material. And for the 40 to 50 people we book every time we do a TV, with rare exception, every single one of them has a defined identity and has an opportunity to tell a story that we can get involved in so that when we end up going to our quarterly, quote, big show, like a hardcore hell or the next one I think is called excessive force, we've brought people to a certain point and there's an expectation from everybody we hope that's been watching, whether it's live in our arena or on television, as to what the payoff could be. And then it's up to us whether we deliver that payoff at that time or whether we keep the idea going. And, you know, we'll create little groups. Like now we've just created a group I happen to like called The Entourage. Um, four or five guys that in theory have theatrical backgrounds. The feature presentation, Jeff Lewis. Mike Mosley, who we've done various vignettes, where he starts it off reading uh, several, several lines from Shakespeare. Yes, we're actually forcing wrestling audiences to listen to Shakespeare. Um, What's wrong with that? And, we've, and when they come out, they have an assistant, Taco, uh, their Mexican assistant, who has to roll out a red carpet and put up a velvet rope before they will go to the ring. And then he has to take it down because no one else deserves the velvet rope except these Hollywood guys. So it's all within that, they all now have a little bit, a little of an identity. And now we've started, we've got a start for them. You know, here's your start. Now each of them can figure out how they fit within the group. What guy am I? You know, we have Jay Clinton who wears this, um, uh, strangely familiar outfit uh, that has straps that goes down, and he has a tendency to do a strut, a strut and raise his hands and go, ain't I great? Uh, somebody else did that once. I'm not sure exactly. Lap nut. 
but but he's thoroughly entertaining because normally what ends up happening is then we just clothesline him out of his socks every time, and we did that spot over and over. But now he's doing – he added a top rope strut that he now does, which was just him putting a layer on his own character and adding something to the storytelling of our match and adding something to the fun of his presentation within it. So once we had, we had created the theater for him, now these guys can go out and add little teeny pieces, and it's our job then to either encourage what works or rein in what doesn't. And that's the process. And that, that's really the way it was done more back in the day than the way it's forced in the current writing. You know, in the current well, writing, by know, God, Bill, this is the direction, and you need to do it exactly this way. There's no if ands, or buts. Now, 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 this isn't just pro wrestling, okay? I mean, we're talking, you know, in the Renaissance time, where, where these uh, playwrights and, and, uh, and whatnot, where they would write different plays weekly. It was episodic, where people would go to the theater every Saturday night, and they would watch a play, and it's all episodic. It's, it, this isn't a new thing. I mean, thousands of years. This is not a new thing. It's the same formula that sh- you brought up Shakespeare. It's the same exact thing that Shakespeare did when writing his plays. It's, you know, it's, it's, Which it's is why thing. various actors have been able to de- uh, interpret the same words differently mm-hmm. and tell the same story differently, performance to performance. It, when you speak of performances of Hamlet, for example, they're usually spoken of as defined by certain actors, like Sir Laurence Olivier's version of Hamlet was dramatically different than in other actors. Mm-hmm. And, and that was because of exactly what you're talking about. The written word was there, but the characterization, the interpretation could be, could be changed mm-hmm. and create a totally different feeling. You're still telling a similar story, but not always the same story. And that, that was putting life into the words, you know, in terms of the acting. And it's the same kind of thing that unfortunately gets stagnated when you, when you tightly script what people do and tell them this is exactly how you have to do it. You end up creating no room for the acting to breathe. Mm-hmm. And then you're faced with who can best deliver exactly what the writers want rather than who can best interpret that which is written. And it may seem like a subtle difference, but it's a gigantic one. Because there was always, in essence, writing in wrestling. It's just nobody put it on paper. Right. Well, that's the It was magic. being written, it was well, being that, written that, as it magic. went along. I mean, we do a format now for our TV that, to this day, is two TV shows, and it's on one piece of paper. You know what it is? It's the matches in order and underneath who else might be involved in the segment. And the rest of it we work out individually with the wrestlers by going through what we want from the match. But that's all we write out. And if there's a vignette, it says these are the guys in the vignette. But I don't tell them what the vignette is because I don't want anybody to come into our tapings prepared. I think that's a mistake. The more time you have to look at a script and prepare, the more wooden your performance is going to be in my feeling. I think that you've got, you know, and I've scripted promos that were 100% scripted, particularly at Deep South, where some guys were, whose jobs were on the line, I scripted a couple of promos for them that thankfully helped them retain their jobs for a while, as, as they were able to tell me, or Dreamer told May me. May I ask time. who? Um, well, the, the Shane Twins, for example, although theirs was twisted. We had a great promo written, because they were going to be the Regulators, was the name I gave them, and it was the first name before they, 
they did the Gemini. And the whole idea of the regulators is you try to find something they can relate to. And you look at the Shane twins, if you remember the Shane twins, two, they're two twins and they're, they're big as crap. I mean, they're just Huge. gigantic guys. Yeah. And, but there was, a, there was sort of a, a, a charisma thing that was marginally missing because they really didn't know what to say. Uh, they had one promo they did. Um, you know, either you smoke or you get smoked. That was their promo. And I had never understood what it meant any time they ever said it. And I told them that. So I said, let's come up with something you can believe in. I said, let's say, let's call you guys the regulators. Well, okay, well, what's that? I go, well, I'll tell you what I think they are, but let me see if you can relate. And I'm, you know, I'm going to talk about maybe your past a little bit. When you were young, as you were brought up, your life was regulated by your parents. What you were allowed to do when you had, when you were allowed to come in, what time dinner was, all that was regulated. Then you go into school. You're on the football team, the wrestling team. You're an athlete. And now the coach is regulating your life. The coach is the one telling you this is the way it has to be done. When you go into the classroom, there's a teacher regulating your life. Everything in your life has been regulated. When you go out and you drive in a car, how you do that is regulated. You have very little autonomy. But then you entered professional wrestling. And that's where, rather than being regulated, you became the regulator. Because when people enter into your ring and into your world, you're going to decide what happens because there's nobody that's going to be able to regulate you in there. And that's the foundation of what I, I created for them, something that they could first understand and then believe in and then be able to talk about. Rather than, and, and you know, and that's, that could have been scripted, and I could tell them that's who you are, but instead, it's can you can you know are those all truths? You know, isn't that really how your life is? And they go, yeah. Well, once they've got that part of it, the rest of it flows naturally because now you don't have to memorize the script. All you have to remember is everybody used to regulate me, but nobody can regulate me in the ring. And that's all. Once you've got that. Everything else flows. You've got your beginning. You've got your end. And the rest of it, you can go on the fly. And if you start thinking about it, as I told them, believe it. Because if you start thinking about how you were held down by the people that restricted your personal growth as by regulating you, 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 brought, you brought a lot. That brings out a lot of anger. And that's what you bring into wrestling, where nobody's going to regulate you anymore. You're going to teach them all. And now some emotion can come into play without having to go, look mean here, you know, that kind of thing. So those are, you know, those are the kinds of examples where, you know, of, of, as I say, I scripted. It really wasn't even scripting. It was more, let's come up with something that you can believe in and then feel free about saying. And once we did that, they ended up, you know, they, they got very excited. They did a wonderful job. They, they both had their, they, they worked their promo out. Of course, here's the, the end of this particular story. Although they hung on to their jobs, bless their hearts, and thank God for it. They get up in line. Michael Hayes is in, and Dreamer knows about the promo. Um, and another kid uh, whose name's escaping, he had just done a promo and, and literally had saved his job, and I can't remember his name right now, bless his heart. Um, but they are up next, and they both walk up together, and they've got the promo, and you can see on their faces they're ready to rock. They, they're the first promo they're excited about because they believe it. Michael Hayes goes, you know, 
let's go ahead and let them do individual promos rather than the one they, you know, the team one. Of course, they had no desire to use them as individual wrestlers, and they never did use them as individual wrestlers. But for that moment, he told them to separate, and the kids walked over to the stair. They walked back out of the camera range, looked down, grabbed the piece of paper they had written notes on, ripped it into tiny little pieces, walked back up to the camera one by one and said, either you're smoked or you get smoked, and, and, and off it went. Yeah. So, unfortunately, uh, Michael, Michael, Michael heard it at that point, but eventually they got to do the promo on tape, and they did a good job, and the office liked it. And then they went up there, and Simon Dean talked to them, and they never opened their mouths. Well, but at least know, they kept their jobs for a while. This, I don't know. Just the, the Shane twins, they, they kind of came off as um, needing to have that mouthpiece, I think. Just they could have done better, but, yeah, guys, unfortunately, they, they were uh, constricted on their ability to come up with stuff on their own. But right. having worked with them, that you could have gotten a whole lot more out of them than they did. There were other right. challenges, potentially. But certainly putting Mike Bucci with them, who's very, very talented, and his character thoroughly entertaining. I, I, I still mark out for him riding the little cart to the mm-hmm. ring, and I tell him that all the time. I still maintain every, you know, that that was one of the great gimmicks ever. You know, and then, of course, you know, Paul Bart the Mall Cop makes it famous. So... But it's the same gimmick. He just stole it. <laughs> okay. Um, I have uh, some questions to ask you um, from a friend of mine, Alex Goff, via San Diego, but he's in Iraq now. He's stationed. Um, and, a, actually... and a loyal fan of what we do, and he's yes, he been is. buying uh, DVD after DVD, and I've been shipping them over to Iran. Uh, so hopefully he's sharing with all the rest of the guys over there. Yes. Alex, Alex says hello, and... And he's a very dear friend of mine. Um, he's he sent me three questions, um, which are very very good questions here. Um, whose idea was it to bring in more internet friendly wrestlers in 2002, i.e. the Briscoes, Divine Storm, and SAT? Uh, that good or bad, that was mine. Um, when when we created Wildside, which which initially was sort of a, a sloppy hybrid of what I wanted to do and what uh, Steve Martin and Ray Rawls were doing with a company called NCW. They had run NCW in that, in that building before I got involved for about three or four months. And they uh, came to one of my shows at, in Loganville at a flea market where I used to run on Thursdays. Uh, I had never heard of what they were doing, and for whatever reason they had heard of what I was doing, I guess because of primarily because of the Nashville stuff, because we were on TV in Atlanta on Channel 36 and had a fairly good audience in Extreme Late Night, but literally we were beating things like Springer at the time, so it was you know pretty good audience. And um, they wanted me to get involved, so I did, but they had sort of a mentality that, uh, particularly Steve, of hardcore, 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 blood, 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 and more blood, you know, and uh, let's pile some tables on top of each other and put people through them, and, and that was a lot of what they did tied in with old school Southern, which I happen to like, but I, I was aware and there can be some philosophical differences on this, but it was my firm belief that hardcore wrestling uh, was not going to move our industry forward. Rather it was going to kill it. If it, if it was used too much by too many people, it is in, in general, what created and, and at some level destroyed ECW because after a while 
their audience of a, a either re, really a 14, 15-year-old male or the, the older guys that had the brain of a 14, 15-year-old male, that audience that was rabidly attracted to the product ended up uh, stagnating. And all of a sudden, the ability to grow beyond it became difficult. And all of a sudden, Paul had to, okay, Dean Malenko and Jericho and, you know, and try to get workers in there. You know, like, we got to get some wrestling going here. We just can't beat the crap out of anybody anymore and have hot lesbian action in the ring. It's, we've stagnated our product. And by the time he figured that out, and then at, by the time they got television, they, they, uh, they were already off the track and that was gone. But at the time, that ECW, ECW mentality had permeated that building and hardcore, hardcore. And I'm very anti-hardcore. I'm, I'm old school too. in the sense that wrestling, I, believe, I believe in blood. Yeah, there, was always, there was always an element of blood and weapons in wrestling back into the darker days, just like, you know, there was always stupid stuff, too, like we used to wrestle bears back in the day. But uh, the reality is, in most cases, with the exception of a few promotions, like the San Antonio promotion that was called All-Star Wrestling because they bled in every match almost, you know, all-star wrestling, actually, the Blanchard promotion, the reality was most promotions built to the blood match, and it was usually a gimmick. In, in my upbringing in Florida, it was a chain match with Boris Malenko and eventually a, a bull rope match with Dusty Rhodes, and eventually cage matches came into vogue, and, and, and so to speak. But when I came into what became Wildside, we sort of had this mix, and the hardcore was you know, blood, 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 you know, you know, we want, you know, we want that became more the mantra that I was fighting against. And as I looked around, the thing that was jumping out at me was that there were a ton, that the greatest number of talented wrestlers that weren't being showcased at the time in WCW, although to some extent they tried to at the very, very end, but they did it as a mass hiring and didn't focus on it well. And for sure in WWE, which is always a big person promotion, there always has been. Now, of course, they've got you know one of one of my clients, Evan Evan Bourne, there. So there's exceptions to every rule. But in general, they were a big guy promotion. WCW was an offshoot of what Crockett was doing, and little guys really weren't in vogue. But there were all these tremendously talented smaller people out there that were just beginning to get visibility in the earliest days of Ring of Honor, which, which was just starting at around this time. And TNA as and, well. And in some of these other promotions. And, and, of course, it ended up becoming the foundation of TNA at the beginning, quite honestly. But right. I looked at that and I went, wow, you know, there's all these the kids. And they were all hungry and they all wanted to learn, I, I learned. So all of a sudden... You know, the SAT, who didn't learn that much over time, but the amazing Red, who did, and has become, you know, both a great young man and a good star, and, and just he's performed healthy. tremendously he's in healthy TNA. And he's back. He is back and healthy. Yes, he is. And, and you'll see that. Anybody who wants to watch next, next Thursday, Thursday yeah. you'll see him on TNA, and you'll be seeing him for the next month or so at least, and hopefully beyond that, he'll, you know, he's an innovator in the X Division. But we had him come in, the SAT come in, Quiet Storm who was with him at the time and has now for the last six years been over in Japan and is currently a champion there. The Briscoe brothers uh, just who came in, literally their parents drove in with them. You know, we had kids coming in from all over the country, and all of a sudden what we called our junior division became our hot division, and we were blessed to have two or three people that were around with us locally 
who were ground, ground, grounded those people. One of the keys was uh, Tony Mameluke. Tony Mameluke, who was a hell of a little worker and was trained okay. correctly. But we also had Kaz Hayashi. We also had Jeremy Lopez back in that time. And they took most of our juniors when we brought them in who all fought in terms primarily of high spots and let them keep their high spots but dragged them down to the mat and told them how to start holding, a, holding onto a move and how to lock something in and how to tell a story on the mat. We did several best-of-five series with Tony Mameluke in particular, uh, one with Caprice Coleman, a kid who's now over in Iraq oh, as a minister. I love We did him. another one with Jimmy Rave that was great until the finish match where I screwed up the booking and threw the towel in and, in essence, turned Jimmy heel that night, which ended up actually leading pretty well for Jimmy because he became one of this business's great heels. But at the time, he was, you know, the pretty boy baby, skinny pretty boy baby face, and uh, I just screwed the booking up on the finish, and that uh, can show you the good and bad of booking. But that was where we got started. I saw that as the greatest area of growth. Everybody else, it was big people, big people, big people, and we had gotten a bunch of those guys in with WCW. Hell, we're, we were the first promotion to showcase Bob Sapp, the Beast, who became one of this industry's biggest stars in Japan. You know, so we, we always had big guys. My champions were guys like Abyss and Stone Mountain and, and Hasta hey. Fernandez. You know, so, but when I went to work for WWE the last time, first thing John Laurinaitis said, he says, well, Bill, you know, you're, uh, you're known for developing smaller talent. And I go, well, yeah, but it's in addition to the other guys. But that became sort of the calling card of Wildside at the time. Yet we interestingly weren't necessarily the Internet darlings simultaneously because we weren't doing spotty McSpotter matches. We were doing some of that, but we were grounding our talent a little bit more. And then added to that, Matt Seidel started coming in. Delirious started coming in. And at that point, you know, the sky was the limit in terms of the quality of the talent that we had that were smaller and you look around the industry now, and pleasantly, a, a large number of these guys have made it to the point where wrestling is their career. There's only a few that really you can't say that about right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. Just to uh, let people know, um, you were you were talking about your junior division um, at HighSpots.com. You can get it. There's two DVDs um, called the Best of the Best of the Juniors, Wild Side Best of the Juniors. Super Those Juniors. Two discs, Super Juniors. Those are fun discs. That's fun stuff. Um, I didn't notice it on the Anarchy site. So well, uh, because High Spots or? primarily, they uh, did a deal. I did a deal with Michael over at High Spots on those a while back, and it's it's a mm-hmm. unique collection I prepared for them. But it, the the it, it's it underscores the the, the talent if as you look at it. Um, and I'll just, I, I've got him in front of me. I'll just, uh, on volume one, without being even specific on the matches, uh, three count, uh, Shannon and Shane, Kaz Hayashi, Jeremy Lopez, Joey Matthews, um, Mark and Mark versus Jay Briscoe. Awesome. Uh, Delirious, uh, Daisy Hayes is even on it. Alter Boy Luke, uh, Matt Seidel, Ray Gordy, uh, who's now in WWE, obviously. And, yes. and then on the other one, we did do the best of five series with Caprice and Tony on that one, but also the Iron Saints, who you mentioned earlier on that, uh, against the guys that totally rule. Fast Eddie, who was a, a good worker, uh, relatively vanished, but a good worker. Matt Seidel in various matches. Jimmy Rave, the Amazing Red. 
So it just it, it's a nice who's who of an awful lot of people that have gone an awful lot further, and we were blessed to have them around as they were getting started. When I first saw tape on Matt Seidel, it was because Kid Cash had worked him, had been around him in Delirious in a small promotion in St. Louis called Gateway. Gateway. And uh, he came to me at TNA and handed me the tape, and he said, Bill, you know me pretty well, and you know I've never tried to help anybody in this business, as I've always had to look out for myself. said, but I'm gonna, this is the first time I want to help somebody, and I think you can do it. Would you please get in touch with these guys and help them? And the first thing I did, and it led to them having some heat with Big Ben, who was the promoter down there, is I said, the first thing you guys have to do is start getting out of St. Louis. You have to find a way to get other places, and it's what you underscored earlier with the Tomasellis, and it's what we've built our promotion on. The job of my promotion, and it's the job I've tried to do for the young talent with whom I've, I've had the privilege of being involved, is to convince them that they can be loyal to a promotion, but they should never be stuck there. Because if you are only in one place and you're always working the same people, there's only so much you can learn. You've got to find a way, no matter who might be listening here and no matter where that person might be, and no matter what you think your spot is, if you don't get out and go someplace else, you're not going to learn anything anymore. You've already stagnated your career, and the odds of you making it by staying in one place are somewhere in that wide gap between slim and none. Matt Seidel didn't get known until he got out of Gateway. We put him on TNA. He started coming to Wildside. He started working for Ian Rotten back when Ian's promotion was a little hotter and, and operated better. And between there, he started to find his star value. That led to Ring of Honor. That led, that led to more TNA spots. It led to him being an offer to contract by TNA, which he turned down, and then a development deal from WWE that led to the creation of Evan Bourne, who is going to be their, one of their next great breakout characters. He's the, he's the only reason why I watch ECW. Yeah, and, 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 well, and well worth it, because he's going to go out there and he's going to work a smart match with spots that will make you go, oh, my God and do it safely. Mm -hmm. His injury was totally a fluke. It was just a miscatch mm -hmm. by poor Bam and probably resulted in Bam losing his job. But, but what, what, uh, you know, what, what happens, you know, is that um, Matt, Matt knows how to put matches together. And, yep, and, but he's been lucky, and it was getting other places. He was tag-team partnered for a while with AJ Styles. So, you know, you can't but learn. How did AJ learn? Well, let's go back with AJ's career. I put, AJ, I, I put AJ on a 2001 card in, uh, am I right on 2000? might be 2000. Uh, down in Florida, it was the NWA anniversary show Howard Brody promoted, and I forced a match. I forced him into a match with the fallen angel Christopher Daniels. I had never met Daniels. That was Daniels. the 53rd anniversary show. Yes. Great. And Chris Daniels, and, and if you ever have a, if anyone ever can ever watch that, there's a, a, mm. a a release that's in stores that has it, and there's various other places to find it. But at the end of the match, AJ goes over on Chris Daniels, and it's a screw thing. Jeff G. Bailey uh, trips Daniels, who goes into the Styles Clash. When the pin happened, the camera people on for the match couldn't resist, and what you hear is, oh, my God, what an upset. AJ Styles, mm -hmm. what an upset. Um, Chris Daniels, who had hair at the time, that tells you how long ago this was, Blonde um, hair, even. When I went to Daniel and I said, who's now one of my clients, and I said, Daniel, here's the finish. 
he immediately agreed to it, and for that reason, both AJ and myself have owed him ever since and always will. And, and one of the reasons he's my client is he's become part of the extended family. AJ named one of his children after Daniel. Daniel named one of his children after AJ. They are that close, and he just did that promo on TNA, and it was 100% the truth. But from there, AJ went up to the Super 8, Jimmy Kettner's annual event. And Jimmy, one of the great promoters in the business, who's also been blessed to have had an awful lot of good talent in and out of his promotion. Mm-hmm. Kevin Kelly held book for a while there. Um, Low-key got his start in that promotion, among others. American but that Dragon, Super 8 has I mean... always been, yeah, very much, Super 8 has mm-hmm. always been a hot ticket. And AJ went to the semis in that year. He then went mm-hmm. over to the West Coast, to APW, to what I think was called, uh, it was Arena Wars or the Sweet 16 or something Gym like Wars. that, that Roland Alexander used to do. Jim Wars. Yeah, Jim Wars. We and he was garage. in that, and, yeah. and he went to the finals of that one. Those three spots, well prior to TNA, and added around the, the fleeting moment he was in WCW that really only barely added to his star value because it was so brief, and he was teamed with Air Paris, and Air Paris had a terrible outfit and wasn't in shape at the time, even though he was a tremendous worker. Um, it was just flawed from the beginning and going to hell in a handbasket. But those three spots on the indies took AJ from being just another guy to being an indie star. And it's that movement to various places. If he had stayed in Wildside as the top guy, I doubt that would have happened. When he got hired by TNA, it's because a match we did at Hardcore Hell 2000, right after Hardcore Hell 2002, was the return match between David Young and AJ Styles, where they went 15-minute Broadway, then did five more minutes and went Broadway again. I sent that match up to a show Burt Prentice was doing that Jerry Jarrett was watching. Jerry Jarrett saw that match, and the first two people hired by, for, by, T, by TNA were AJ Styles and David Young. For the David beginning Young. of the exhibition. You know, you, you mentioned David Young. Um, <clears throat> he doesn't get the respect that he deserves. I love his work. And he's another guy that's been all oh. over the place. Right now, we, by the way, he's doing motion capture with a number of other stars for the WWE Legends video game. So you're seeing David Young's work if you're, when you go play that game. But uh, David uh, was a multi-time NWA World Tag Team champion. Uh, he uh, spent some time, he did, did matches up in WWE, spent a goodly bit of time from the beginning with TNA and did some very, very creative and entertaining things in there. The, if you go back and you watch some of the stuff, even though it was at the time the booking ended up getting cut off before they paid it off. Well, for example, he did a great thing where he had an angle with the insane clown posse, which was basically based on the idea that he was afraid of clowns. And it mm-hmm. just tremendous. Um, we did an angle with uh, former WWE and former TNA referee Mike Posey that created Dropkick Posey that David Young did brilliantly. And it, while it wasn't booked well and it could have been booked better because we'd done a similar thing at Wildside, it established Posey as a player in the business and you know now a kid who's been to multiple WrestleManias. And David Young was the catalyst of that. Um, you know, David is a tremendous worker. He's a big guy. He's a heavyweight, mm-hmm. and he can work like a cruiserweight at times. I think that the one the one downfall I think for David is he's too quote unquote southern. In other words, I I, I kind of get the I compare him more to like an Arn Anderson, where he would probably need a mouthpiece, where he would be a great enforcer. Yeah, although when Art finally when when Arn was finally given the ability to talk, he proved how good he right. was. 
and David right. it falls in that category. AJ, the Southernism thing is a is a, a weird conceit of the wrestling business because it never used to be really the issue. Um, and it, it's interesting. Vince Russo is, is famous for not believing Southern people can talk. He thinks they all sound like hicks. Um, and, you know, and that was initially even the way he scripted Jeff Jarrett as the Southern singer, you know, ain't I great guy. Um, AJ had that as his stigma for a while, and it wasn't fair to him. Now, I've worked with AJ a lot on his promos, but really what brought AJ out of his shell, and even though a lot of people hated it, was when they turned him heel and he became slightly a comedy heel with Tomko. And he started doing those ridiculous uh, promos with Kurt and Tomko where Tomko would just stare at him like, what kind of idiot are you? But that brought AJ out of his shell. Then we started working on southernisms, things that you do naturally as a southerner, you, certain words you clip, and then certain techniques that anybody can learn when it comes to presenting yourself in the ring or in a promo. One of the, you know, a, a minor one, for example, anytime you say your name, pause. Assume the crowd cares about your name. So you'll now notice, if you watch an AJ Styles promo, that he will go, when AJ Styles, one, two, give the crowd a moment to acknowledge, because nine out of ten times when they hear a star's name, a crowd's going to respond. And if you continue your sentence too quickly, you're not giving the crowd room to breathe. At some point, that betrayed Steve Austin, because he used to use it as an art form, and that's when the what's started coming in, because he was giving them the pauses artificially. And then he used it to his advantage. If you remember the Rocks promos, Mm -hmm. he would pause tremendously and get more out of turning his head and cocking an eyebrow than most people get out of three pages worth of words. And those are the techniques that, you know, if if people want to learn the talking, pay attention to the little things, not the, the length of a promo but the, well, what makes things believable and what draws your attention? One of the first things we teach our talent when it comes to promos is don't wander around the ring because you're not, nobody's going to listen to a word you're saying if you're wandering around the ring. They're going to watch you, talk, walk, you walk, watch you walk around. Mm-hmm. But if you stay still, when you move, it'll have impact. And The Rock was brilliant at that. If you go back and watch Rock promos, he created the ability to speak to all four sides of the ring by standing still and simply opening his body. And if wrestlers start paying attention to that rather than the standard promo where they believe they have to go to each of the four corners to talk to the crowd, you've got to be larger than life. There's got to be something special about you in the ring. You know, the more – same thing about, you know, I, I love when kids want to know – when I go – I, oh, I've got a promo this week, Bill. What should I wear to the ring? And I look at him and I go, well, you can wear what you're wearing, and you're going to look like the rest of the crowd. Or you can put your freaking gear on and at least look special. Or dress up. You know, that was what separated the champions back in the day. They all knew to go out and look the role, whether it was Bockwinkle, Flair, Buddy Rogers, I don't care who it was, even the fashion plate Freddie Blassie, who was known for filing his teeth and slicing people to shreds, he would make sure when he presented himself he was larger than life. He wasn't just another ham and egg or off the street. 
And that's another place where the kids today betray themselves. They, you know, in their effort to be one with the crowd, they in essence become the crowd. Mm-hmm. And you've got to be different. There's got to be something that makes you special. That and you have you, to wear. If you don't gear. dress the role. Nobody's going to buy it. You know, Bill, I'm, 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 I'm in the same boat as my friend Alex, where we're, we're huge marks for gear. I love it when guys come out in wrestling gear because there's only one Raven. You know what you're getting, and you're getting a full presentation. The great characters are fully defined and flushed out. Undertaker has a very distinctive look, but so does AJ Styles. You know, it, it doesn't all have to be the intricacy of an outfit, but there's stuff that you want to see and expect. One of the things fans are going to see when they see Amazing Red is we've turned his look, his look now on its ear because they were used to this guy with carrot top head wearing a, wearing a bodysuit, basically, and, and, and baggy-ish pants. Now he wears real tights, no shirt because he's ripped, and he's got short hair. The same guy, different look. And that's the look he's going to be sporting from now on, and I guarantee fans are going to be impressed by it, and it's, that'll be what takes off for him. But I'll look at a lot of indie guys, and first of all, and this is just general advice for an indie guy, if you have to wear a, a T-shirt in the ring, um, don't, ever the send it, don't ever send a tape in to anybody for a job. Go to the gym, Because you're not ready yet. If you're not wearing good gear, if you're wearing baggy pants, sweatpants, anything like that, you're not ready for anybody to see your work. Don't care how good you are. You're just not ready yet. Um, you've got to get decent gear, and it also helps to have somebody else's opinion on that because a lot of guys make make mistakes. Like Matt Seidel came to me one time at a show, and he had on, and uh, I'd actually Hunter Delirious had had said, Matt wants your permission to wear new gear. Please tell him no. And I went, okay, this must be very entertaining. So I said, Matt, I understand you've got gear that you want to try out. And he said, yeah, let me go get it on. Next thing you know, he walked out wearing the little teeny weeny pants, uh, you know, little briefs, sort of like Chris Saban used to wear or Tyler Black wears, you know, the kind that barely cover yourself. And I looked at that and I went, nope, you're not allowed to wear those. Go put clothing on. You know, that could be your underwear. Go, go put, you know, put your long tights on. You're not the biggest guy in the building. And if you wear the long tights, it accentuates the definition you have in your upper body, and you're going to look bigger. And that's the look he's maintained. If you'll notice, to this day, he wears the long tights, and he's in tremendous physical shape in the upper body. And the long tights forces you to see how defined he is, and it gives him an impression of being a bigger guy. So there's a technique to gear. It's not just go get something and put it on. Right, right. Now, um, <clears throat> we've got about 20 minutes to go left in the interview. Um, let's, uh, we're going to evaluate talent, and I, I'd like to get your, your honest opinions on talent. Um, and I'll, try to, bury I'll, I'll try to be or, short. <laughs> or, or we're not going to bury anybody or anything. But <clears throat> no, because no, we... in general, I, I'm, I, I like an awful lot of people, so it's tough for me to bury anybody. Only people I bury usually are people that uh, are unprofessional. Deserve <laughs> that deserve it. Me too. Yeah. Me too. Um, now, but before we continue, um, I did not do any research on you as a person. I, I've been trying to figure out by, by looking and watching your body of work, and I was right. You are from Florida. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, so, I was brought up with watching the greatest booking that probably was ever done in wrestling. Although I'm 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 prejudiced, but I know that uh, Dusty Rhodes and uh, and uh, Jerry Jarrett would both agree with me because they both learned from this man, and that was Eddie Gra- the late Eddie Graham, uh, a go. troubled man later uh, before he committed suicide, but at the same time one of those brilliant bookers ever, and uh, he was very, very specific on how things went, and his finishes were extremely complicated for the time, yet always made sense. And not, it was bad, not, bad for a guy who, not bad for a guy who never graduated high school. Yep. And, and, and again, he had the dean, he had Gordon, to make it real. And you add those two things together, the believability factor, treating it like a sport, and making the, and giving it the sizzle, putting some sizzle on the steak, creative characters, good heels, good baby faces, rotating people, and it, it, it was brilliant. Uh, it, was, it was and is the best booking there's ever been. I enjoy other areas, and I've been involved in other areas. I enjoyed world-class booking around the Von Erics, but that's what it was. I've enjoyed a lot of the Memphis booking, and I was even involved in that, and I've learned from that, and I've enjoyed even some of the stuff that was done in the Crockett area, and I loved a lot of the stuff Jimmy did in Smoky Mountain, but the best now, there I'm, ever I'm has to, been um, was in Florida when Eddie Graham was the promoter. Okay, I'm going to have to disagree with you. Florida will be a close second. For me, um, 1986-1987, Bill Watts, UWF, um, I think takes the cake. Bill Watts was Just very good. It, the episodic he, he, was very much, he was very much into strong angles um, and, and, and pushing the aggression level. Um, mm-hmm. Which, which, you know, and, and I, I agree with you, that was, that was very, very strong. You know, blinding junkyard dog. Uh, mm-hmm. Literally, there were riots frequently in many of the towns where Bill, where Bill promoted. But, yes, I, I'd agree with you. I'm, I still maintain Florida was, was a more rounded product, but Bill's heat booking was brilliant. Mm-hmm. And he, used, and he yeah. utilized good bookers. He used Ernie Ladd and, after that, Billy Dundee. And, you know, he used good people to, to flush out his Bill. vision. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, my my favorite angle, my two favorite angles were uh, Eddie Gilbert and the Russians putting the flag on Bill Watts in the UWF in '87, and in uh, Mid South 1981, um, Ric Flair defending the title against uh, Ted DiBiase. Murdoch comes out, rams DiBiase into the pole, bloodies him up, and uh, turn, effectively turning DiBiase babyface. That is my favorite pro wrestling TV show. Yeah, simple turn. TV. Sim- and a, and a very South- simple way to turn somebody, and that some, some of that's been lost by our business. Yes. Okay, let, let, let me put, that, put this over real quick. It's um, Mid-South TV episode number 100. You can get that at, jeez, uh, I think it's Universal Wrestling Archives. But, yeah, it's Mid-South episode number 100. It's the, probably the best TV show that I have ever seen. And mm-hmm. I... I follow all kinds of different stuff. I've been a fan since 79. But that, yeah, that just blew me away. And it, it hooked me and still does. It still does. No, it's, it's all compelling. Does. And in fact, you know, more, more fans of today's product should reflect back. And I think they'll be surprised at the quality of what they see. They'll also see a lot of garbage if they're not careful. But, mm-hmm. that, you know, you always have okay. to take the good with the bad. Now, I'm, I'm not going to ask you about what your favorite angle that you have written. I'm not going to ask you that. What is your favorite angle as far as being a fan that you have seen? Ooh, uh, huh. 
God, there's so many of them. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, I, you know, it, it's easy for me to answer my favorite one that, that I've ever done because it was, it was only a so-so match, but it was a brilliant moment in terms of setup, and that was a, a six-man that I did where Dusty Rhodes came in to manage uh, the God Squad, Gabriel and Alter Boy Luke, um, who teamed with uh, – uh, who am I missing? Uh, Gabriel Alter Boy Luke. Oh, AJ. We brought in – that's right. We brought in AJ. Yeah. And then we had Chris Daniels, who had turned on them on the previous night, and the NWA elite, Azrael, the Rain Man, and Michael Judas, who was Michael Adrian at the time at ringside. And it was just, you know, I, I still get emotional whenever I see the ring introductions on that because it was the culmination. The second greatest thing I ever did on mine was um, a, a turn where, where uh, when we did the reunited suicidal tendencies against the guys that totally rule, and Mike Posey turned heel in that moment, and the ring was pelted. And the other one was when we brought in Chris Champion as a babyface referee for the New South versus Bad Attitude. And uh, we ended up having and Champion in a blowing mist and turning as the heel ref. And the babyfaces went under and the ring was pelted and we had to have police called to control people. And those are always the best angle, uh, angles ever. So now, and, and those are I, I, you want me to, to to look at other ones, but in terms of my experience, right. those are the ones that always come back to me because I've seen so much elsewhere that's all begun to blur over time, and right. then I have to factor in also some Japan stuff that I was enamored with, um, or or even yeah. the stuff I used to read back in the old magazines that used to intrigue me. Uh, I could the one this may be silly and it's not even a great angle. The one one thing that will always be in my brain as special, um, and in some small way it was the first and it was a change in the business was old show that Joe Pedicino did global wrestling. He brought in a feud out of Minneapolis, the Lightning Kid versus oh. Jerry Lynn. And for the first time ever on national television, there was a dive done outside the ring. And it was Lightning Kid diving out on Jerry Lynn, who was out on a stage area that was even with the ring floor. And I had never seen anything like that before. I had seen Mil Mascaros in a cross body block. I had seen some, some dives, including I had seen on television uh, when I was in New York the, the, the famous Snooker dive. But I had never seen anybody go outside the ring uh, like that. I'd seen Lucha Libre do that kind of garbage, but I'd always discounted it because it was so comic booky. That one moment, I remember calling Pedicino and going, that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. So that may not have been the greatest angle ever or even the greatest match, but it jumped, that, that jumps out at me as an innovative turning point moment in the business. What, what did you think of the, um, the, the sleeper hold or the hold versus hold match that um, Jerry and uh, uh, Sean had? Good. However, if you want to go back, my favorite version of Hold versus Hold was Sleeper versus Sleeper, Joe Scarpa, later Chief J. Strongbow, versus Dale Lewis in Florida. Uh, they, did, they did a series of those. Um, and, of course, although I never saw it, uh, Living in Infamy as one of the great matches ever was a 90-minute uh, Texas death match between Cyclone Negro and Dory Funk Sr., if you can imagine. So in Amarillo? You know, just shows how yes shows how much the industry has changed. It used to be the only of course later in life I believe it was CM Punk and I forget who but Punky and somebody with uh, with, with with Rudy Charles as the referee and freaking IWA Mid South entertained themselves if not Chris the crowd Hero. by Chris Hero, Chris Hero by going ninety minutes simply so they yes. could say they did it too. 
But it was it was a brilliant match. They did not lose the crowd. They did not lose the the fan watching it on 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 uh, tape. So they did not lose anybody. Um, Dave Prezak, who was the commentator for the match, said after that he he blew up. You know, it was just a, a brilliant match, and that was a really good series too. Uh, Hero and Punk. Um, you know, you also have Delirious and Seidel. They were you know. Uh, yeah, their matches were all good except the, except for Matt's last match in Ring of Honor where he got knocked out and doesn't remember yeah. the match and has never watched it accordingly. Mm-hmm. Now, anyway, you um, wanted to ask about individual people. Go right ahead. Yeah, uh, we have about nine minutes to go. Um, I'm just going to run down some names, and, and I want your honest opinions on them. Mm-hmm. And the reason I ask is because your opinion holds water in this business, and promoters do listen to my show, So good. and I do – like to put guys over that deserve to be put over. Go right ahead. Okay, um, the Tomasellis. I like the Tomasellis. Both have matured. Uh, when they came in, they used a finish move I didn't like. It was an unprotected double-team move where the guy's face got smashed into the ground, and I banned it and told them not to use it. And they continued to, which I think was a process of rebellion and them learning. I've since watched, and, and uh, I believe it's, uh, if I remember right, it's Sal, or one of them has actually started to promote and has sent me some of the stuff they've been doing, and I've seen a, a new maturity in their work, some of which that was missing back when they worked with me. Um, a lot of guys, because of what they've done other places, believe what they're doing is right, and sometimes they have to go someplace else to find out they may not have been as right as they thought they were. And I think part of that process occurred with the Tomasellis when they came in. The, the Tomasellis today are head and heels better than the guys that came in and worked for me. Okay, let me let me put my boys over real quick. Um, they're based out of Chicago. EliteProWrestling.com is the name of their promotion. Um, they also have uh, streaming TV on the website. So, Bill, you might want to go to their website and check out their. TV they send shows. me links. Per- they send me links periodically. I've stayed. I've, I I can't say I'm regularly in touch, but I do hear from those kids. Anybody who's ever come in and worked for me that I've spent any time, I, I usually, they usually don't go very far for very long. I'm, I do keep track of everybody at some level. And those are good kids. The only, we, the only negative that anybody could say is that they're not the biggest guys in the building, but they work very hard. And uh, I, anybody in that area, certainly I would recommend them for bookings at any time and always have. They, they went they from, also... from my stuff and started working for Ian Rotten after they worked at Wildside, and that led to them putting their own promotion together. Right, and they also have a school as well um, where they train in the same, same way that they were trained out here in California by Michael Modest. So they were they, they training run... actually before they came to me for some right. guys up in the Chicago area, but probably before they should have. Just, well, and at this just point, they agreed down, with me back then they didn't. Just to run down their timeline, they started in, or, or Vito started in Chicago. Sal moved out here to go to college. Vito followed, and they they Sal trained here. Then they went to Pro Wrestling Iron, which is in Northern California, Michael Modest, right. which is where they got there. And then they went from there to you, to Ian, and to Chicago. So right. And they were helping they, do some training at Modest back when they right at the tail end of that. That, but in fact, they got in touch with me more or less through Modest. He was the one who put them over, and uh, then they headed out our way. Well, the and the thing is, they they both told me that wherever they moved, it was strategic. Yep. They learned. They went to you to learn how to uh, work TV. They came here to learn the, the stronger style in the ring, the, the All Japan type style. 
but let's get off uh, the Tomaselli's. I, I don't want them to get big heads. So <laughs> no problem. Uh, I, I know you're listening, Sally. Yeah, big, big, big heads for small people. That would be Jamie Noble. Not that he's yeah. got a big head. Not that it, not that he's an egotistical guy at all. He's one of those he's generous. He's got a rather large head. He simply has a big head. That's all there is to it. Okay, he's one well, of those generous I'm, guys in the business, and his match with Evan Bourne on Evan Bourne's comeback spot was a thing of brilliance, and he volunteered for the spot when he was hurt. But anyway, that's a whole other story. Go ahead. Okay, I, I mentioned uh, Michael Modest. Mike is a dear friend of mine. Um, we've been friends for about 12 years now. Um, what, what do you think of Michael, and why? Always, has near- always been a solid worker and was always an inch and a half away from a real spot in the mm-hmm. business. And for whatever reason... Uh, it ne- it never solidified to the point where he had that full time spot, uh, but but in terms of storytelling, in terms of professionalism, um, oh, yeah. at, at both as a worker but also as a promoter, as a as a wrestling uh, teacher, um, good guy, and and he's one of those guys that will help the people that come in. There's an awful lot of people that say they train, and all they're really there to do is to take money. And I can tell you from experience that if Modest thinks somebody is good and he wants to see them get opportunity, he's one of the first guys to get on the phone or to write me an email and say, hey, you know, do that. When I booked some people that he had been helping on WWE spots, he was one of the first guys to get in touch and thank me for doing it. So, you know, he's not just, he's not just there at the beginning. He's there in the follow-up, and then that can't be said for everybody in the business. Yeah, it's just it, it's a shame. Mike Mike's just so brilliant, and the stuff that that he did in Noah was just amazing. Um, it, you know, it's a shame. And if if you look back at the movie Beyond the Mat, um, where Roland Alexander was talking about Michael Modest um, not being, he was signed, talking about his chase of Michael Modest, uh, which one of yeah. our defensive parts of the whole frickin' film. Uh, but well, that, by the way, that's an that's an example of the negative, right the there. Thing is though. Like, Bill, the thing is with Roland, okay, that was a shoot. That was real. Oh, I know. That was but real. There's, and there's, I've, I've always had a difficulty. Um, no, nobody that I've ever been involved in, uh, I, I had a contract with AJ for over a decade, and only recently have I started getting paid because he's starting to get paid at a big level. Um, I, I never could, you know, the idea that, you know, I'm going to train you and then I own, you know, 10% of your life after that and all that other bullshit um, I've never been able to be comfortable with that um, un- unless something really strong is delivered. And, you know, I, but that, that may just be me. But it, I, every well, I, time I, I watch I, Beyond the Mat, I get cranky at that spot, honestly. Yeah, I, I, I don't think, like it. The other spot I find thoroughly entertaining, though, is Roland sitting in his office, I think, eating a cheeseburger while he tells some guys to get to the gym, which I just mm-hmm. thought was entertaining. Oh, you know, the, the, the thing... Do as I say, that, not as I do, yes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you know, that, that whole, I get 20%, uh, that's bullshit. Now, I feel, I don't know about you, Bill, but I feel that there should be a gentleman's agreement. If you get big, you come back and you do us favors. I'm big on yeah, that. Yeah, but I never, I never require that either, although, you know, the kids that have all come in and worked for me are always willing to come back. And, and right now, for example... You know, the kids that are at TNA would. Hernandez, who has said repeatedly he'll fly himself in to do a spot any time, the only problem is that that wouldn't fly with his contract and would just lead to heat. So, you know, just but knowing it is enough. Um, you know, knowing that that's what the guys feel. You know, we had consequences. Creed came back, and we didn't let him do the in-ring spot he wanted to do. 
or I didn't. Uh, I, I had him just do a promo spot and hand the match to somebody else, and we used it to launch Orion Bishop, who just started with us. So right. anyway, uh, now, who, who else should I comment on? As, We're running out of time. Now, um, as far as uh, Sean is concerned, Hernandez, um, I will be hanging out with Mr. Hernandez this evening. Uh, he's out here in San Francisco for FogCityWrestling.com tonight. Um, I will pass on a message that you say hello to him. Hopefully he'll be able to get a comeback on Todd Bridges. Yeah, no shit. No shit. That's cool, man. I get to hang out with Todd Bridges tonight. So that's going to be fun fun stuff right there. Um, let's see. Jason Sean has, good, Sean has good stories he tells about his experience with me. Because when he came in, he had been told that he was great, he was wonderful, and he had always been put over because he was big. And he did a match for me, left the ring, came to the back, looked at me and said, well, how would I do? And I said, that sucked. So it was the first there time anybody go. had told him his stuff sucked before. And he, and he likes to say, and you may not know, Bill's not that big a guy, and I'm big. And he just looked up at me and went, that sucked. And he walked away. <laughs> so, um, Sean, Sean's see. a talented guy and, uh, and is going to make it, and is already making it big in this business, but he's going to be a standout heavyweight, and I wouldn't be surprised if, he's, uh, if he wasn't a future TNA heavyweight champion before long. Yes, I have to agree, but uh, probably not with the uh, with the writing team they have now. But that's a whole no, no, no. Story. Probably with the writing team, they have a, they're very supportive of, of Sean, and he's For heading week, in that maybe. direction right now. He's got to get a, get a little tweak done to uh, a body part over the next uh, week or so, and after uh, he's a hundred percent, I I think you'll see him in a very good position with TNA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's just a. Uh... Remember he's, prom- he's been promised he first- a title. Yeah. Remember he's been promised a title match. So he's got to get go. that at some point. There you go. Exactly. Well, um, let's just uh, what we'll do is we'll wrap it up. Um, I'd love to have you on again, Bill. Oh, anytime. Uh, it was a pleasure doing this. It's amazing how much time we just spent. Yep, hour and a half. Now uh, let's uh, let's plug your your website and. Um, also, how could uh, people get a hold of you to book talent that you uh, that you uh, work with? Well, we've got a uh, we're developing a booking site. Uh, Craig Cole, who uh, helps me with the television uh, in terms of getting it on the internet, he has his own site and he puts the TV on our uh, nwaanarchy.net site where you can watch the the Anarchy Television. Uh, he also maintains a site SBI Show Business Inc. SBIBookings.com which is the new booking site that has pictures and a little bio info on the people that I help with bookings. Uh, people can write me uh, at showbiz, S-H-O-W-B as in boy, I-S as in Sam, at AOL.com. And uh, we also, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm doing the weekly recordings at whoslammingwho.podomatic.com. And there's a lot of great people on there. That's well worth anyone's time on a weekly basis. And Usually the stuff's up for two weeks, so it's not something where you have to be there on Monday. Uh, you can really go there anytime you want to, and uh, it is downloadable to iPod and stuff like that, so you know, very transportable. So uh, I encourage people to go to that. And uh, those are the primary areas to communicate. I do have a MySpace site, a Facebook site, but I primarily use those to uh, embrace uh, close personal friends and see how many I can come up with. So. I'm not really in. I've never quite understood the Facebook uh, Facebook concept of poking people. Someone can explain that to me sometime. I have I have no idea. I refuse to do the uh, Facebook thing. I do MySpace, 
but I, I just can't do the Facebook. It's not my yeah, thing. To me, MySpace is just a website, so, but, but I'm, I'm a little old school on that. The things I, the things I don't know about computers fill books. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Hey, at least Jim Cornette has a, has a website, jimcornette.com. Yes, the, and, I, uh, and, and accordingly, I believe the coming of the apocalypse is soon upon us because <laughs> the fact that Cornette is anywhere near a computer just scares me. Bye. He, had, he had vowed he'd never be near that, but thank goodness, actually, his, the lovely, his lovely wife, Sin, is the one doing most of the work, and he just sits there and still pounds it out on an old-school typewriter, you literally. You need to buy the book, his Midnight Express book. Uh, he sent me a brilliant. copy, and it is brilliant, and I recommend it to everyone who has an opportunity. It's detail-oriented, but the stories in between the detail and the pictures, uh, he was nice enough to send me a personally autographed one, and he promises me that the next book, which will be about Smoky Mountain Wrestling, I get to be in. So at least I, I get put over at some point. So that'll be sweet. Awesome. Well, Mr. Barons, thank you for your time, brother. It was my pleasure. And I'd love to have you on again for, for another installment of uh, Booking Spotlight. Thank you very much. And enjoy Fog City tonight and say hi to Sean. Awesome. Thank you, sir. And I will be in contact very soon. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, that was Mr. Bill Barons. Um, jack of all trades. He's done everything in the business and then some. He's influenced many, many people. Wow. This hour and a half or hour and 33 some odd minutes have, have gone by really quickly. Um, let's uh, run down the sponsors. WrestleWarehouse.com. You can get Lucha Libre masks, t-shirts, um, DVDs and whatnot. Also, SlamBamJam.com for current and past classic Lucha Libre and Japanese pro wrestling, as well as some really good best-of DVDs, so check them out. Uh, props to the mothership, angrymarks.com. Thanks for hosting me, Stevie. Uh, much love to all you guys, Ed, Peachy, all you fools. Big D, I love you, man. And um, you can get us on MySpace, myspace.com backslash rubberguardradio, or you can email me directly, k-i-d-z-o-m-b-i-e-2000 at aol.com. And just a quick reminder, tonight... Doors are at 8 o'clock, FogCityWrestling.com, uh, DNA Lounge in South of Market in San Francisco. If you can't make the show, you can watch the streaming, uh, streaming video of the show, FogCityWrestling.com. Um, well, that should do it. We're going to wrap up the debut episode of the Booking Spotlight, and we will be back on the air next Wednesday with the ECW Zombie. So check us out. Later.